Media Kicks is the leading influencer marketing agency, connecting the world's top brands with engaged audiences through social media influencers. Their campaigns drive brand awareness, audience engagement, and product sales for top brands like Nordstrom, Blue Apron, David Yurman, Hallmark, and more. Visit MediaKicks.com to get started with your influencer campaign today. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Ryan Bosak, VP Network Operations at Fullscreen. Ryan started in traditional television, but has been in the digital world for many years. He started at Machinima, was the first employee at Style Hall, and has now been at Fullscreen for the past three years. We're delighted to have him. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. How's it going, James? Good. How are you? Good, good. Doing well this morning. Awesome. So today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to focus our conversation on digital rights management, which is something you're somewhat of an expert in. Yes, I spent many years doing this at this point. But I want to say that we're neither of us are lawyers, and we should probably give a disclaimer up front that yeah. while we will talk about things like copyrights and fair use, always consult your friendly neighborhood counsel before making any determinations or legal actions. Yeah, what we're going to talk about really only consider kind of a, as a guiding post for how things work on YouTube and other digital platforms. But, you know, we definitely are experts in the space, and, and I work very closely with my counsel at full screen on, on all these kinds of issues. Perfect. So first off, just to set some definitions up, what is digital rights management? So digital rights management is essentially protecting your intellectual property in the digital space. You know, you put a video on your YouTube channel or your Facebook page or wherever on the internet, and it's very highly likely that that is going to make its way around the internet onto other people's channels or pages or wherever they are on social. So digital rights management is delivering those files to some sort of rights management tool of which there are many at this point, to locate those copies of your content and then hopefully either be able to take them down using a a Digital Millennium Copyright Act form, which is known as a DMCA or a takedown or a strike on YouTube. Or if you want, in some cases, you're able to monetize the other versions of your video, block them, track them, get the data. Perfect. So in summary, people copy content on various social video platforms like Facebook, like YouTube, uh, it's not always malicious. They might be fans of the show. In other cases, they are pirating the content with the intention of making money. Yeah. You know, in most cases, it's it usually is fans that just really love the content or, you know, they really love this specific shot from your video and, and they want to use it as a transition because it's so pretty or, or something along those lines. So let's talk a little bit about YouTube specifically. YouTube was the first major platform to offer monetization to mm-hmm. creators through the partner program. Correct. How do they protect intellectual property for content owners, given that monetization is such a big piece of the platform? Uh, well, that's a great question. So, you know, at first when they launched monetization, there was no rights management on YouTube. Really all they had, like most websites do today, is a DMCA takedown form. They realized very quickly when a lot of large publishers started coming and getting very angry with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point of legal action, right? Famously, Viacom yes. suing YouTube for over a billion dollars, yes. uh, which was a lawsuit that dragged out for seven years and was ultimately settled. And none yep. of that was disclosed. No. So, you know, YouTube knew they needed to provide something. So they created their own technology, which is known as Content ID. And the Content ID technology essentially allows me to deliver a copy of my own exclusive content to a separate video server, which then checks YouTube for copies of that video. And it does three different checks. So when you deliver something, it's going to look for things that are uploaded in the future immediately. It's going to check for popular uploads and recent uploads immediately. And that check may take as long as two weeks. 
then it's going to check for kind of the higher view content, but lower than, than that first initial check. That's going to take about two to six weeks. And then there's a check where it's going to check the entire platform, which will take about six months for newer reference files. Sure. Which is smart, right? Given the just huge volume of content on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, they start with recent uploads, popular content, and then look historically across all of the videos on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta bucket it somehow. Otherwise, it would just take forever to actually find that content. And talking a little bit more about the Content ID system, uh, it was launched, you know, around June two thousand seven. Uh, so you've been working with it for a number of years now. How has the product evolved over time? Oh, uh, it's changed tremendously. You know, well, when I first started, so, you know, the, the whole entire content ID suite, there's multiple things. So when we're talking about content ID, people usually lump the entire process into that term. But what that really means is broken out into two things in my mind. So the first is the content ID technology. And when you deliver a reference file, content ID is going to go to work locating content, and it's going to do one thing first. It's going and to, when you say a reference file, just to clarify for listeners. Yeah, sure. So that copy of your video that you deliver to YouTube. Or is, sound recording. Or sound any, any recording. Any form yep. of asset that's delivered. Yep. Okay. Any, any form of intellectual property that you can give to YouTube, uh, you can enable for content ID if you're working with a provider that has that ability. And that's going to start doing these checks and doing what's called video matching or audio matching, where it's going to locate content through a heat mapping technology that it believes matches what you've uploaded to YouTube. And if it has enough certainty that it actually matches, it's going to go ahead and automatically claim that in the background. And a claim is a connection. So take one step back. And these are kind of abstract concepts. So hopefully the listeners can understand this. When you upload a video to YouTube and you do what's called a claim, you create what's called an asset. And an asset is a container for information about a piece of intellectual property that exists on the YouTube platform. And that asset contains a lot of metadata inside of it. So can you give us an example of the metadata. Sure. So yeah. like say the Disney movie frozen. Yeah. Okay. So you deliver Frozen, you're going to deliver, you know, the title, you're going to deliver the directors, you're going to deliver, you know, the cinematographers and those kinds of things. But then you're also going to deliver what's called a policy where you say, I want this video to be visible and monetizing in countries X, Y, and Z. And then I only want to track it in, in countries ABC. And that's based on your legal ownership and the ways that your organization has chosen to enforce policies that's, around. That's correct. It's entirely based on your own terrestrial rights. You can also deliver a match policy. So when you deliver that reference file, you can you can define what you want to do with what's called user-generated content or UGC that that reference file actually locates. There's a significant amount more. So you've got description and based on the kind of assets, there's a lot of different kinds of assets you can deliver to YouTube. It changes what metadata is there. So if you're delivering an audio file, you're going to have to deliver an ISRC and you're going to have to deliver writers and you're going to have to deliver, if you're on publishing, you're going to have to deliver percentages. And like, it gets very, very complex, very quick what's inside of all of this stuff. So that asset has all of this information and that's how YouTube knows what to do when it locates a video to do what's called claiming. So that claim after the initial claim on the original IP transfers all of that data to the secondary video that's been uploaded. And that video becomes what's known as a UGC claim. Those are all done. If it's done through the reference files, it's done as video matching or audio matching. And just to recap what we've talked about so far, 
I'm a content owner like Disney. I've delivered my reference file for the movie Frozen, which contains the entire full-length feature film, mm-hmm. which is the audio and, and visual you know, components of that asset, or that which becomes a reference file. From there, Content ID uses audio and visual fingerprinting and watermark technology to detect if the reference file matches other clips that have been uploaded to YouTube. That could be full-length copies of the film. It could be clips, compilations, et cetera. And if there is a match, uh, the system will automatically detect that and place a claim. Correct. But it has to, it does have to have a certain amount of certainty that it does match. Also, how do we establish that certainty? So it checks it against the percentage of the reference file and the percentage of the match. So, you know, usually it really depends. You know, YouTube kind of determines based on how providers like a full screen or event pixels is is performing what their percentage is mm-hmm. so it can be throttled you know all the way down to we're not going to do any matching all the way up to you know 100 percent. that is one form of content ID matching which is video claims match yeah what about other forms of claim activity the other form is what's known as descriptive search right so there is a match time restriction that's really important on the video matching side how long is that restriction it's a little shorter for audio and i I believe it's 20 seconds on audio but for video it's 30 seconds so the uploaded ugc has to match at least 30 seconds or more of the reference file for a video match claim to be made what happens with videos that are shorter than 30 seconds so for shorter than 30 seconds we have to actually go search out and find this stuff. So some content providers have the ability to do this inside of what's known as the YouTube content management system, where they have a separate tab that they go to and they can search a term and uh, it will populate results from that. And we look through those results. And if we find content that is not our original IP owner's video that's floating around on YouTube, then we claim it that way. And those are known as manual claims or descriptive search claims. So now we've covered two types of claiming. There's the automatic matching that YouTube does through Content ID. And there's also some content owners are given the ability to do manual claiming based on descriptive search, meaning the system is not automatically finding and placing claims, but a human operator is going in and searching based on metadata or keyword searches to find that type of content. So they might input search strings in our example, like, Frozen or Let It Be or the names of the characters in the film, when they find clips that would be a match, then they would place a claim manually. Yeah, correct. What are some of the limitations around Content ID today? I mean, the you know, the biggest limitation, in my opinion, is the match time restriction. When we look at the difference in claims, it's very, very interesting. On the video match side, we see a significantly higher volume of claims by about honestly, by about 100%. But on the descriptive search side, we tend to find a lot more value out of those claims. So we're actually bringing in more dollars and a higher volume of views from those claims. Why is there a minimum time requirement for claims made through video match? YouTube, you know, I mean, legally speaking, needed to have some parameters around it so that uh, content ID isn't just wandering around doing everything. I mean, when you deliver a reference file, it, it starts working really quick. You can do, if you deliver a bad reference file, you can do a lot of bad matching really fast and be taking money from people that you shouldn't be taking money from. So they have a responsibility to make sure that they are doing claims correct and that that their providers are giving them good content and doing those claims correct. And from what I understand, YouTube had to draw a line in the sand somewhere because if there were no minimum length restrictions, they would have too many false positives, right? I mean, black bars, stock footage, et cetera would be generating too many improper claims. Especially for creator content, you know, that's definitely an issue that 
a lot of people use After Effects templates or they'll use a you know, a, an end card that pretty much looks exactly the same as everybody else's. A lot of people use studio audio and, and stuff like that to just have some music in their video. And and if, if everything's too short, yeah, you're exactly right. We're going to deliver a lot of bad reference files and get a lot of bad matching. You know, one that was uh, really interesting that I ran into in my career, we had a creator that did art tutorials where it would just start with a canvas in front, you know, full screen. So it was just a white screen. And then the hand would come in and start drawing, you know, and, and something would appear and it was really cool. But the problem was that most of the screen was just white. So there was a reference file that got turned on for one of these videos and the amount of like Uh-oh. computer screens that we got and like other just random, you know, 30 second long white <laughs> backgrounds that we ended up getting on this reference file. It, I mean, it was a huge mistake, whoever turned it on. And so how do you resolve that? that? You know, the YouTube CMS actually allows us to, to fix all this stuff. So when we found that one, we went in, released all of the claims, and then And when you say release all the claims, that refers to when there's a conflict between claims or when an improper claim perhaps has been made and yeah. needs to be released. When you make an improper claim, basically you go in and you click a button and that button removes your ownership that you're asserting against that video. And that allows the original owner of the video to then start monetizing it again or whatever it is they want to do. So how does the dispute resolution process work within YouTube? If I have a claim that's automatically placed in content ID and then Mm -hmm. perhaps you automatically, or you override that through a manual claim and we come into conflict, how do we handle that dispute? Yeah, sure. So for most YouTube creators, the way that it works is, you know, if you get a content ID claim or you get, when I say that as the video match claim or a descriptive search claim, you know, you're going to get a little blue notification in your video manager that says match third party content. You're able to then click in and actually try and dispute that claim. So you click a few buttons and basically say, you know, I don't think that they own the rights to this for reasons X, Y, and Z. And then that actually gives me on my side a notification inside of my content management system that I need to review this video because someone is disputing the claim that I have made against it. I can then go in and review both my original video that I have that's owned by Fullscreen or whomever and the video that's been uploaded by the other person. I can review them right there. If I agree, then I can go ahead and release that claim. If I disagree, I then reassert my claim of monetization on it probably is what I'm making. And then there's one more step. So if you disagree with that again, you can dispute it again. So kind of an appeals process. Yes, if you will. It's, an, it's an appeals process. It's a built-in appeals process into the system so that hopefully YouTube doesn't have to get involved and we can just deal with it like adults. Between and for all the of most us. part, even lawyers don't have to get involved trying yeah. to handle things very, you know, proactively and peacefully. Exactly. So, you know, hopefully through just the claims process before it gets to take down some sort of resolution comes to be. If I reinstate the claim and you appeal that reinstatement, then if I still think that I own the rights, I have to issue a DMCA takedown against you. And again, DMCA stands for Digital Millennium, Millennium Copyright, Copyright Act which was published in 1998 and is designed to protect intellectual property online. Correct. At that point, you can actually counter notify the takedown. If you really truly feel that you own the rights to it, know that if you take that step, it does make you liable and you are potentially putting yourself in a position to go to court 
and be sued for use of content that you may or may not actually own. So if you do feel so strongly that it gets to that point, it's probably best to consult a lawyer at that time and just make sure that it looks like you're moving in the right direction. So odds are, if you're a creator, you're not going to get sued necessarily by a big media company, but there have been some examples of that. Yeah. So there's a really famous case with uh, Ray William Johnson and Jukin Media. So Jukin is a viral clip licensing company. On the Ray William Johnson side, Ray tends to use clips and uses a fair use defense to provide a license for use. And how do you define fair use? So fair use is, uh, it's, <laughs> and again, I'm not a lawyer, so this is just how I interpret this. And you should always seek legal counsel if you're going to make a fair use defense. But Fair use is essentially a defense against a claim of a copyright against something that you have created. Fair use has four tenants. You know, you need to take your content and kind of benchmark them against these four tenants of fair use to understand whether or not you think it could actually fit into the context of what fair use is. And when it really comes down to it, the only person who can actually make a determination about whether your content is or is not fair use is a judge. You touched on the four tenets of, of fair use. Uh, the first is the purpose and character of the use. And there are some exclusions or exceptions for, say, educational or nonprofit purposes. Uh, the second is the nature of the copyrighted work itself. Mm-hmm. Three is the amount or substantiality of the portion used in relation to the intellectual property. And number four is the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of that copyrighted work. Yeah. It's not super black and white inside of those four tenants, right? Fair use is, it's a good defense, but just keep in mind, it is only a defense and it does not necessarily just by virtue of existing protect you from a copyright claim or a DMCA takedown. We've touched on the different types of claims that a content owner can make and to walk through those specifically for users, an action you can take through the content ID system is choose to monetize the content if Mm -hmm. a claim is placed. Uh, You can track that content, which in essence means you're going to follow how the clip is performing. You get the data and analytics associated with it, but it's not being monetized. And then third, you can choose to block that content in certain areas. Mm -hmm. The fourth is, I guess, a takedown. So do you want to explain a little bit more about the impact of a DMCA notification or a takedown? On YouTube specifically? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, takedowns have major impacts for your channel. They can disable your monetization. They can cause loss of product features. And ultimately, if you rack up three of them that get upheld, you can lose your channel entirely. And in really extreme cases, you know, you can actually have your AdSense disabled. And if your AdSense gets disabled, you're pretty much done on Google platforms. So Um, most creators are probably familiar with that three strikes in your out policy. Yeah. If you get three copyright strikes on the platform or three upheld violations of copyright, you will have your channel shut down. Correct. The other type of claim that actually can cause some problems, and so it should be noted, is what are known as global blocks. So as you were saying, you know, you can you can do geo blocking. So like, let's say, you know, I've got a video and like, I don't really mind if people use it. But in Germany, somebody else owns it. Germany is always this territory that has like, their own rules, their own... Very stringent copyright laws. Yeah. And they have a lot of different companies that don't necessarily always want to do the same thing as, as the American companies. You know, you can block territorially and then like monetize in the rest of the world. But if it's a global block, if you rack up global blocks, you can get your monetization disabled and lose product features as well. You're not going to get your channel shut down for global blocks. If you have a combination of too many global blocks along with a couple of copyright strikes, that could 
move you down that path. But global blocks are definitely something to be wary of. And one thing with both of these types of claims, if you get them, if you're trying to resolve those claims because you want to get your channel back in good standing so you can start monetizing and all of that again, do not delete the videos. That's really, really critical. If you delete those videos, it's like hiding the evidence, yeah, just destroy the evidence. Exactly. Well, and some people think if they delete the video, it'll it'll just cause the claim to go away. These claims actually do stick and they count against your account. And if you just delete these videos, it can cause features or it can cause uh, problems in the in the technical back end of everything. Where like I, if you were to dispute it can't actually go in and release the claim because there's no content for me to actually release the claim against. So this claim just sort of sits in like this limbo of being there, even if I wanted to release it. So don't so long story short, don't delete your videos yeah. if they get claimed. It's, it causes massive problems. And what happens if I place a claim against a video, I'm asserting my ownership of that asset. And I say, you know, I want to monetize this, but you also feel you're entitled to that clip and you place a claim to block it. What policy is then applied? Oh, so you mean like if there's two different pieces of intellectual property in somebody else's video? Correct. Right. So YouTube by default will always uh, take the most conservative policy that is placed against the content. So let's say there's a situation where there's four different owners. Three of the owners want to monetize worldwide on the pieces of the IP or the video that they own. And one owner wants to track on that worldwide on the piece of it that they own. Everybody else will be out of luck and the video will just track. So everybody will be getting data, but nobody will be making money. You know, and it it gets even more interesting when you start to get into terrestrial stuff. So let's say the person that tracks is monetizing everywhere, but tracking in Canada, for example. So everybody would make money except in Canada. So it gets it gets really complex and confusing. The bottom line, YouTube applies the most conservative policy, policy. which does make sense. What if we all choose to monetize? What happens then if, if we, uh, if there are multiple owners on a claim? Yeah. Then everybody's making money. You're good to go. And it is split. Yeah. Amongst those owners. Yeah. How are the splits determined? So those splits are determined a bit in the YouTube ether. From what I understand, if they're actually done on video matches, then it's supposed to be based on the percentage of the content that you own. If they're done through manual searching, then I believe they're just split even Steven. So if there's four claims and it makes a buck, everybody gets a quarter. And we talked about some of the limitations with the content ID system that especially, you know, it's not recognizing videos under 30 seconds. Uh, It struggles a lot also with compilation videos. Uh, So say like native, super short form content, like Vine videos and Vine compilations are a huge problem on YouTube. Yes. There's also challenges with very experienced copyright violators, these pirates who are playing a cat and mouse game with YouTube to learn how to get around the content ID system, whether that's dropping frames, speeding up or slowing down the video, changing the coloration. Uh, there's a lot of techniques they've identified that you know can get around the system. Mm-hmm. So with that, are people forced to rely on manual claiming or, or how do we, how does the content ID system yeah. ultimately get better? Well, look, I mean, we know that no technology is perfect, right? It's pretty good, but it's not perfect. I really, I I can't imagine a world where manual claiming isn't a thing because there's also just so many problems that arise when you're claiming, whether it's video match claiming or not. I mean, we're going in daily and and correcting little idiosyncrasies on this video match and that video match or this descriptive search or that descriptive search. 
So I just, I can't see a world where that actually happens. You know, some of the things that I like, I would love to see improved on the content ID technology. I'd love to be able to administer splits, revenue splits. So either I can allow people to participate in the video or if there's like it, the UGC channel to participate in a portion of the revenue on the video or Thereby if there's... incentivizing fans to create content around IP rather than just penalizing them all the time. It, exactly. Or if let's say there's a, a couple different owners, like, you know, like at full screen, uh, somebody who collaborates a lot together is Scott DW and Devin Supertramp. Scott's produced a lot of music for Devin and Devin puts that in his videos. You know, if I threw content ID could be because Scott, you know, may have only produced that particular song for Devin. If I could share the revenue inside of the asset and like define that, that would be really helpful. And other than that, just, you know, the match time restrictions, something that I've, I harp on YouTube a lot about that I would love to see the match time restrictions go down. Well, I know they have 400 engineers uh, working away and is it Zurich? Uh, Zurich, yeah. Make it better. So let's see. In our experience of Pixels. Continuity is very capable when it comes to music or audio claims. Uh, yeah. I'd say over a 95% success rate or confidence interval on it, audio claims. It's significantly better on the audio side than it is on the video side, for sure. What is you? What have you seen on the video side in terms of how many claims are placed through video match successfully? You know, we see a lot higher volume of claiming from video matching than we do from descriptive search. I mean, the second we re- put a reference file into the system, usually it, it almost instantaneously is matching. If it is over 30 seconds, like it's almost unequivocally going to find that content. There are ways to get around it. And I've seen some very, very interesting and unique cases. But on the whole, like uh, video matching is probably going to find what it is that you've uploaded if it if it's over that match time restriction. And that's you're talking about a creator use case. Yeah, 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 sure. Exactly. And that certainly can be true. I mean, it varies substantially based on the type of content. But mm-hmm. uh, it, what we've seen is almost up to 40 to 60% of potential claims are missed by video match uh, for large content owners. And again, very mm-hmm. dependent based on the type of content. But we go in and using descriptive search claiming or manual claiming can find twice as much opportunity or revenue uh, potentially claim. From Absolutely. That. Well, I mean, you know, it, dep- it depends on the perspective that you're looking at it from. But as far as number of claims, we actually find more claims on the video match side. But as far as performance, I 100% agree with you, you know, for creator content, because most of our content is getting jammed into these compilation videos. We've got, we represent a lot of Vine creators. You get these people making these 10 minute long Vine compilations with 400 Vines in it. And you content ID can't find any of it. And a lot of the Viners aren't putting their content on YouTube. So, you know, we're then responsible for actually going in and finding this content and placing these claims. So you'll see these Vine compilations that'll have 100 claims on them, 200 claims on them, you know, from all sorts of different owners, full screen and collab and Jukin and, and everybody. So, wow. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Well, we've talked a lot about YouTube and its content ID system, but what about other social video platforms, right? Thinking about Facebook and all of the freebooting that's going on today. And by that, we mean, you know, people who are pirating content or taking content and uploading it natively to Facebook and building an audience around it when they're not the rightful owners. How Mm -hmm. do Facebook and other video platforms uh, combat that? Most of the platforms provide a DMCA takedown form today. So if you do find your content, you can at least inform them and let them know you know, when it comes to Facebook, I mean, it is publicly out there that, that full screen is part of the, the initial program with them it, working on their video matching technology. It exists and they are working on making it more prevalent and better and a technology that can work for everybody. 
That makes sense. I mean, ultimately, someone the size and scale of Facebook ultimately needs a system like yeah. Content ID. I, I mean, all of these, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a really, really exciting time in the digital space, actually, just because all of the other platforms are starting to come online with video and they all know they need to come online with monetization on video so that creators want to be on their platform and participate with them. And with that also comes all of the, you know, threats of lawsuits and, and IP protection and whatnot, because in the digital world, it's just going to get shared. That's the way it is. You know, they're all working on these tool sets so that large content owners and providers like full screen and universal and MGM and maker and bent pixels and CDS and all these guys can actually deliver and protect their content around those platforms. Today, every platform more or less other than YouTube is, is takedown only, but we are moving into a world in 2016 and 2017 where there's going to be a lot more revenue and a lot more participation in that, both on the partner provided side, so the original IP owner and the UGC side. Right. So thinking ahead to the future, what does that hold for digital rights management? Well, I think you're going to see a lot of growth in it. I think what you're going to see a lot of, and there are a lot of companies doing this right now, is companies that are trying to get in the space as sort of crawlers that you're capable of delivering the reference file to, and they will check on all of these platforms and let you know. You know, the the, the biggest challenge that we have on digital rights management across the internet is discovery. We know our content is everywhere, and we need better tools and we want better tools to actually be discovering that content. There's at least four or five companies right now that I'm aware of that either have or are creating technologies to do this at a bigger scale. And that would be They're, folks like Vobel who are building yes. continuity-like solutions in that they also use audio and visual fingerprinting and mm-hmm. watermark technology to automatically detect copies of content based on reference. Files. Yeah, I mean, the two that, that really come to mind up front is Vobel. Uh, and Pexesso. But there are others that are out there as well. And, you know, they're all very interesting. They're all doing very different things that are similar, but have their own unique capabilities. And, you know, I think we're moving into a world with digital rights management where we're going to have to use probably multiple technologies to really be scaling and and doing everything that we want to do. I think the most, the biggest challenge for content aggregators like MCNs is just going to be getting the content where we need it to be. Our, the, we're, we're kind of uh, chained to the channels that are linked to us. So we're really only able to deliver stuff to YouTube from those channels. So full screen doesn't own any of the content, whereas Sony and Universal and those guys, they have these huge databases with all this content. And while it's you know a challenge, they can deliver it to different places. For us to deliver our creators' content to all of these different places that we need to is very, very, very challenging. So I think that's going to be one of the biggest hurdles that we have to overcome. And hopefully somebody comes up with some great technology to help us do that better. Wrapping up, what are some of the most common myths that you've encountered around continuity or digital rights management? That the whole thing is just a bot and just crawls and does the whole thing on its own. And there's just these content ID bots that are just claiming stuff. I mean, I'm sure that somebody's written a script to automate some of this stuff, but you know, for most of the companies that are legitimate companies, there are actual people sitting there doing this stuff. You know, for me, I have about six guys that are sitting there full time 
doing this. You know, some companies like you get into a Zephyr or something like that, they literally have 60 employees plus that are just sitting there actually manually doing all of this stuff. Despite what people think that it's just this machine, even though that's where we are because it's it's UI and that's what we have to communicate through. There really are actual real people that are sitting there doing this work. Any other myths that come to mind? There's a lot of myths around fair use. Uh, one big myth that I also see a lot is um, people tend to think that uh, YouTube is um, public domain and it absolutely is not. The definition of a copyright is as soon as you create something and put it into a fixed format where it can be shared And whether that's, here's a napkin and I drew a picture of a rose on it, or I wrote a song, that grants you a copyright. You don't have to register it. You don't have to do anything with it. You you own that. And you have the rights to assert your ownership of that, whether it's, you know, on a digital platform or out in the real world. Well, this has been incredibly informative. Thank you so much, Ryan, for helping us demystify YouTube's content ID system and digital rights management as a concept. It's been really helpful. Absolutely. It's been great being here. Thanks a lot, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.